0: So we've all heard the saying, um, the proof's in the pudding, right, y'all heard that or am I just old, yeah? The proof is in the pudding, actually the old school version of the proof is in the pudding is the proof of the pudding is in the eating, all right? The proof of the pudding in, is in the eating. Why would they say back in the day in old in old Europe, why would they say the proof of the pudding is in the eating? Because Pudding in old world Europe, not the creamy, homogenized, chocolate, yummy, sweet, jello pudding that we know today. Pudding in old Europe was various fragments of leftover meat with a lot of spices added in and some meal of whatever you happen to have on hand and all stuffed into an animal's stomach and baked. That's what pudding was. So you can imagine before the days of refrigeration, that saying meant a lot, right? The proof of the pudding is in the eating because you're never quite sure what you're gonna get when you cut into that that thing, right? So, yummy, the breakfast of champions, that's what I I say. Um, So we are in this series called Order in the Church, and one way to say that is the proof of a church's order is in the preaching, and in the living, and in the behavior of the church. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and I want to I have two concerns as we go into this message this morning. One, this passage is going to talk a lot about elders, and a lot of you are going to say, well, I'm not an elder, and I never plan on being an elder, (laughs) right? Well, if you'd asked me 15, 20 years ago, I would have said exactly that same thing. So A, you don't know that you won't be an elder, or women's leader, or uh, Sunday school teacher, or Bible teacher. And indeed, B, you already are, by virtue of the fact of being a believer, if you are a believer, you already are an elder, a preacher, a teacher to somebody in your life. Amen? So nobody nobody gets out of here unscathed this morning. Just saying. So let's look at the passage, and before we look at the passage, I really need to pray. So Lord, I just, I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. I thank you, Jesus, that you're not satisfied with, with the status quo. That you don't save us and then just leave us to, to bumble along in ignorance and in our own sin, without hope or direction or reformation or change or revolution in our lives. God, I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds once again and that you would stir up faith. Lord, that you would increase our practical knowledge of what it means to walk and work and love in your truth and grace and mercy and compassion and Lord that you would continue to refine and develop and build out the hope we have in eternal life. Lord we pray all these things in your son's name, amen. All right, so we are in Titus. Uh, Robert kicked Titus off last week and we're gonna continue this uh, first chapter of Titus and we pick up in verse five. Verse five says, this is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul talking to Titus. And he says to Titus, who's one of Paul's, you know, faithful disciples, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. This is where we get the title of the entire series, right? That Paul is leaving Titus on the island of Crete so he can put the churches that have been planted in Crete into order, okay? That you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Okay, we're really going to focus on two questions this whole time that we have together. Question number one is why put the, why put the church in order? What, is it, what does that mean to put the church in order? What is the purpose? What are we after? Is it just to have an orderly church? No, having an orderly church is just the means to an end. What's the end? What are we we doing all of this for, right? What's this for? Why why are we putting all of this in? So question number one, what is this for? And then the question number two is going to be how do we do it? How do we go about putting the church in the order? How do we go about building out the purposes and achieve the mission of the church? So first question, what is this for? And, And in order to answer that question, I need to go back to Paul's introduction. I'm not gonna re-preach the message from last Sunday, but I, it's important that that this first line of this book is very much fresh in our minds as we go through the rest of this chapter. So verse one says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for what? What are we putting the church in order for? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. What is the purpose of putting the church in order? It is for the sake of your faith. Think about this Paul told Titus to put the church in order for the sake of the believers in, in on the island of Crete. That has been passed down every generation till, until today and here we are today 2,000 years later and we are still exhorting one another in our faith. We are still preaching faith in Christ and in the life, death, resurrection of Christ alone for our salvation. So primary, number one, why are we putting the church in order? We're putting the church in order for your faith, mine and yours faith, that we would put our hope, our trust, not in our own works, not in our own ability, abilities, not in our own purity, not in our, who we are, but in Christ the Lord, number one. Number two, not, not only for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but for our knowledge. And it's not knowledge in the way that our culture usually thinks about knowledge. We're very, our culture, Western culture is very academic. They think of, no, we think of knowledge as something that is abstract, that is outside of ourselves. That, you know, something is either true or it's false. It can be true or false, and it has no impact on me. Right, it's separate from you, it's just this abstract, absolute or relative truth, right? But in the Hebrew mind and in scripture, and and frankly in the mind of God, knowledge is directly connected and is one and the same as behavior, as who we are. To have knowledge means to be a kind of person, right? There's no separation, there's no break between what we know and what we do, okay, in God's economy, in the way that God has originally designed us. But because of our sin nature, that is very much distorted and very much broken, right? We may think something is true but behave completely different than that. So, the purpose in putting the church to order is that we not only know, have knowledge of the truth, but that we can actually apply it into our lives Notice Paul says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Meaning knowledge that's consistent with godliness. Knowledge that is focused on the essential nature of godliness. Right? I mean the Bible is you know, all of the truth that is in the cosmos would fill a lot of books, right? In fact, one of the I think Luke is the one who says, look, if I wrote down everything Jesus said and did, the world couldn't contain all the books, right? So it's not about, you know, everything, every bit of knowledge in all the universe. It's about the essential knowledge, the essential knowledge. Paul is saying the, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, the knowledge that is about understanding the love of God and how we are to love our neighbor. Right? That is the essential knowledge, the essential truth. That is the focus of scripture. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Right? And another one that sits right beside it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Right? That is the essential truth. And to know it means to know it beyond just intellectual ascension and say, yeah, yeah, that's true. We need to love God and we need to love our neighbor. But to be that to actually show up in your neighborhood and, and be different than all your neighbors in the way that you express your love for them. Right? You are an elder to at least five families. Right? The family to your right, the family to your left, the family across the street, and the two families on maybe on either side of, the, of that across the street neighbor, depending on where you live. In an apartment, you might, might be six families, one above, one below, you know, who knows? Three-dimensional, <laughs> preacher, uh, elder. So you are that. And Paul's saying, for the sake of your faith and for the sake of your knowledge, your practical, worked out, living out loud knowledge of the love of God. Okay? And thirdly, knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. Notice right after that it says, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. We talked about this in the men's group yesterday. It's interesting Paul says in hope of eternal life and then says which God has promised and God never lies. Often again in our culture when we think about hope it's not a biblical kind of hope. It's a hope that says, "Well, I hope so. I wish it were true. It might be true. I'm I'm hoping that it's true." That's our culture. That's the way we tend to use the word hope. But the way scripture uses the term hope is it's a confident assurance it's a confidence it's a it's a rock solid you know what i know this this is true is there something in your life that you know is going to happen and you just you orientate your whole life on the around this reality this is going to happen you know the sun is going to rise tomorrow by the way the lord might return and may not but you know The sun is going to rise tomorrow, and you arrange today based on that reality, do you not? You arrange today based on the fact that you're going to, you know, get into that crazy commute tomorrow morning, go to work, or whatever, wherever it is that you go to work, right? You know that's a reality, and you're prepared for that. Even if you're like, I'm not even going to think about it, that's another way of preparing for it, right? You know it, and that's how Paul means this when he says, um, in hope of eternal life. Do you know That God chose you before the foundations of the world to live forever in his new heavens and new earth and to dwell with him forever. Is that that a a place of confidence in your life? The answer is yes, sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I'm not thinking about it. Sometimes I just really wonder, Lord, help me. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief, right? Which is why we need be part of a well-ordered church where, where God through his word and through this crazy thing called preaching continues to stir up in us a faith and a confidence that we might know we were born to have eternal life in him, in the new heavens and new earth. So what is the purpose? Why do we have a well-ordered church? What is it there for? For the sake of our faith for the sake of our working knowledge of the love of God, and for the sake of our confidence, our hope in our, in our eternal life. How do we do this? How do we have a well-ordered or church? Let's go, verse six. Actually, back to verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And here's the first thing you do to, to put a church into order. Appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. All right, does an organization not reflect its leadership? Absolutely it does. Leadership is so important. So first thing Paul is telling to Timothy, look, we need to put these churches in order, and agenda number one is to find elders, find leaders, right? And not just any leader, but a certain kind of leader. And let's look at what kind of leader that is. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charges of debauchery or insubordination. All right, so, uh, well, I'm going to continue. I'm going to read all the way through the list. For an overseer as God's steward, it must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay, a lot here, and honestly, I, it's a strange thing to preach this as an elder, right? I, I think Robert felt the same thing when he was preaching this, because it's like, well, what kind of arrogance does it take to talk about, you know, being um, above reproach, you know? I, I'm husband of one wife, I'm confidently, I'm husband of one wife, uh, and his children are believers, you know? That's all about raising your children in the love and discipline of the Lord. What they do as an adult, you know, that's, that's their responsibility. So I want to encourage us uh, Christian parents, you know, look, you don't have ultimate control over your kids. You do the best you can. You raise them in the love and the discipline of the Lord, and then you give them to, the, to Christ. And, and they have to make their choices, and they have God's own calling in their life. Um, So, I just want to encourage you in that you, your account, we're responsible as parents for what we have control of, and that control gradually dissipates and disappears by the time they turn into their late teens, right? And by the way, that's healthy parenting, right? Healthy parenting is recognizing that that young guy or young guy has to become an independent adult before they're ready to become an interdependent husband or wife. So I wanna encourage you, You know, as hard as it can be sometimes to, to let, let those kids go and let them, let them uh, find their way. It doesn't mean you're completely detached from them, but it does mean you give them room, more and more room as they get older. So just a little aside there. Here's the main point that I wanna make out of this list. And we've kinda of gone through a very similar list in Timothy, so I'm not gonna break this down in detail. But the main point I wanna make is notice that a good leader, especially a leader who's going to lead in a church, their walk has to match their talk, right? What we just talked about, this idea that knowing God is not just a head trip. It's not just mental ascension to, okay, this is true or this is false, but it's becoming that truth. It's taking in the knowledge of who God is and becoming a reflection of his character. Right, so this is not just someone who has a good talk, someone who is uh, really well-spoken and understands precepts really well, but as someone who understands precepts to the point of internalizing them and, and it changing mine and yours life, right? So as we progress, as we walk with Christ in this process that we call sanctification, We are continually in this process of learning new things about him. And then the hard part, learning how to become that ourselves. That's the real challenge, is it not? In fact, indeed, it's impossible. You know, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it really depends on the Holy Spirit and God's living, breathing word that we're reading right now that we progress and, and, and this head knowledge becomes something that we actually live out and, 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 and reflect to each other. Amen? So we're all striving in this list and it's, it's a humbling list and the reality is none of us are there but we will be. God promises that. God says, you know, I'm going to deliver you perfect and holy before the Father. And that's on God. He made that promise. So the hope is not in you and your own self-discipline and your own ability. The hope is in Christ and his ability to change our heart, changes from the inside out. So how? By, by appointing leaders who live out what they preach. Okay? Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What's really interesting here is Paul's not only saying that, hey, he's got to hold true to the trustworthy word, right? It's not just holding true to the scriptures. And we talk about that all the time in the church. You know, we are a church that believes in the authority of scripture, right? And we preach and teach from scripture, okay? But it's actually even more precise than that. Notice Paul says, we must hold firm to the trustworthy word, and he doesn't end there, as taught. What does he mean, the trustworthy word as taught? Do you know the Mormons will preach and teach out of the Bible? They they teach out of the Bible. They quote scripture. But Paul's saying it's not just teaching the word. It's teaching the the word as it's been taught. Well, been taught by who? Up at the beginning of this, um, Paul says in verse 3, he says, Well, I'll pick it up at eternal life. In hope of eternal life in verse 2, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted with. So God has manifested faith, the knowledge of God's love and the hope in eternal life through his word in the manifestation of Christ which Paul is preaching from. So as taught, Paul is saying, as I preach it. It's the word as the apostles have, have preached it. The word as the apostles are teaching it. Well, how do the apostles teach it? How is that unique or different than any, anyone else might teach the word? And the answer is they teach it the way that Jesus taught it. Okay, well, how did Jesus teach the word that's different than how anybody else teaches the law and the prophets. Remember the uh, when Jesus was preaching and teaching, people said, This this man this man teaches with authority, not as the scribes and the and the uh, lawyers, right? He, te- he teaches differently, he teaches as one who has authority. John, the, the evangelist John in his gospel, he begins the gospel by saying the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. And then he later he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the embodiment of Scripture in the flesh. So how do we teach Scripture? We teach it the way the Word taught it. <laughs> the Word who became flesh taught it. So therefore, an example, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. So how does Jesus teach the law? He teaches the law by living a perfect life, by explaining the law and the prophets to us, and then fulfilling that law by going to the cross, becoming the sacrificial lamb, dying and resurrecting into the life, and then returning and ushering into the new heavens and new earth in the future. That's how Jesus preaches the word. He preaches the word by being it. He is the word. Amen? So when we teach and preach the word, we are preaching and teaching the word the way Jesus taught it. That is our goal as Christian preachers and teachers. And by the way, that is your goal as a Christian preacher and teacher with your family, with your neighbors, with your co-workers. Right? You teach it the way Jesus taught it. Which is, hey, I am Jesus. I am the embodiment of the word. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we preach the word. And this is what Paul is saying. Look, you need to have men who are going to preach who who are faithful to God's word and they preach it as it's been preached by the apostles, who preach it the way Jesus preached it. Amen? Makes sense? Um, So, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We have two jobs. One is to teach and preach as Jesus did and also to correct and rebuke false teaching, unchristlike teaching, even Christ-like teaching of the Word. It brings a whole other dimension to it, does it not? So... How through the credible teaching and preaching of elders, who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught by the disciples, that's how we achieve this goal of, of increasing faith, increasing our knowledge of God's love, increasing our hope and confidence in eternal life. Let's continue in verse nine again, um, and I'll, I'll just I'm going to just pray for. for phrase the last section by saying the other way that we achieve this goal is through the discipline and correction of those who are not credible teachers and preachers. Okay, so let's look at it. Just said, uh, uh, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate Notice how that, play, how that contrasts, how Paul's been talking about himself. Remember, Robert Peach last Sunday, Paul talked about how he is a slave to the gospel, a slave to Christ. The, the opposite of that is for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So one of the ways that you can really see a false teacher or someone who is really not about you know, our faith—not about our confidence in the Lord—is someone who likes to just go on and on about whatever their particular hobby, theological hobby horse is, and it's very head. It's very head knowledge, and it has no application, no, no sense of redemption, nothing that you can take home with, and and no meat in it. It's just cotton candy. It's just air, right? And not only that you don't see any evidence in their life of it having any impact, right? And that's the real test. I mean, you can fake a lot of things, but it's hard to fake. Um, it's very hard to fake if we go back up to that list. It's, it's hard to fake not being arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. How, how long can you get away with trying to fake that? You can't. And so sooner or later, someone who's just full of themselves, it shows up and we need, to, we need to move on. We need to correct and discipline it, we need to challenge it, we need to push back on it, but, and we need to not let it become a focus or, a, or, a, a, or we can't let that suck the air out of the room in terms of what we occupy ourselves with, right? kind of like, I think that the, we're I, like the, what screams at me as I read that is I think of social media, right? Is social media not just completely composed of empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of circumcision. By the way, what does he mean by those of the circumcision party? He means uh, Jewish people who are in the church in Crete, who are still hanging on to, the, um, the traditions and the ceremonial aspects of the law, one of which is circumcision, right? So yeah, you are saved by faith, but you're really not kind of right with the Lord until you've been circumcised. So any of you men who you know, haven't been circumcised when you were born in the hospital, There'll be a room set up in the back there. You're gonna to need to call your boss and tell him you know, you're gonna be laid up for a few days, and then you'll be right with the Lord. I mean, that's literally what there, what's happening in these churches in Crete, okay? Some of you are like, well, that's way too much information for me, John. Um, but the point there is Jesus plus something, external uh, religion, uh, salvation through works, yeah, Jesus is fine, but do you drink? Do you, you know, do you God, do you go to church on this particular day every day? Do you go to church twice a week? You know, do you, you know, all the external things? Yeah, Jesus is great, but you know, what's the external thing? On the other hand, we just got done going through a whole list of external behaviors, right? So, here's the here's the best way to think about works. Works are not Um, the cure, they are the diagnosis. They're the fruit. They're not the cause, they're the fruit. So we look at works as a way to diagnose where we're at. We don't look at works as a means to cure. Okay, does that make sense? So let's just grab one of these things from Paul's list. So quick-tempered, okay, that's the one I just landed on, quick-tempered. It's not, well, because you're quick-tempered you're, you're less than in God's kingdom and that maybe your, even your salvation is suspect. And if, and if you fix that and become well-tempered then you'll attain salvation. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for your quick, quick-temperedness and he's covered that with his, his own blood and now because you are new in him and you have his holy spirit and you are ante- anticipating a new heavens and a new earth and you know you're going to live there you're like why am I getting so mad what why do why does this matter and mean so much to me lord what is in my heart that it means so much to me that a that I get my way that I have what I want because I put my hope and faith in myself. And if I don't get what I want, then I'm doomed. But I realize, Jesus, my hope and faith is in you. And you'll give me what I need. Therefore, you know what? It doesn't really matter that much, does it? It matters, but not that much. Right? That's the gospel. That's how works play out. Works are the fruit and the, and the diagnostic. They're not the means, they're not the cure. The cure is Christ. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Another hallmark of a false teacher is what are they in it for? Are they in it for their own power, their own prestige? Or are they in it for the money? We're certainly not in it for the money around here, I just got to say, you know. I mean, stipends are cool, but, you know, no, we're not going to live off of them. <laughs> but we could be in it for our own sense of self-esteem, our own sense of power, our own sense of, like, you know, value. What are we in it for? And Paul's saying, look, you know what, I'll tell you what I'm in it for. I'm in it for Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. I've given everything. All my stock is on one stock, and that's Christ, Right? What are we in it for? And if they're not in it for Christ, especially in leadership in the church, man, we got to shut that down. We need to confront it. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, this this is a fun passage, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons. And then Paul says, the most politically correct statement in all of scripture, this testimony is true. I'm like, thanks, Paul. Okay. Um, So, but the truth is this. I mean, we're very careful in our political, politically correct culture, and and for good reason, I believe, to not sort of paint with a broad bust and say all Cretans are liars, lazy sluggers, right? We're very careful about that. But you know what? If the shoe fits, you wear it. If it's true, it's true and there are things in culture that are not in alignment with God. Culturally, every culture has things that reflect some of the glory of God, and they have things that are just reflect the nature of Satan and this world, okay? And we have to call a spade a spade, and that's what Paul's doing unashamedly, saying, yeah, their own, their own guy says that they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy guttons, and I agree, they are, as a culture. Culturally, they are that, in fact, Culturally, they esteemed as deception. If you're really good at deception, you are, you know, that was you were higher, you were higher on the ladder. You were you were to be esteemed. That was a value, right? So there are values within culture that are just whacked, broken, and sick. Okay? I reckon that there are values in our culture, don't you think, that are whacked, broken, and sick. I mean as, I've been, as I was studying this, I can't help, I can't avoid, just one of the things that screams at me is that we look at our, at our political world today. And you know, it's probably always been this way. It feels like it's just gotten worse and maybe because of social media and all the hyper focus on it. But how many politicians, how many politicians could you pass this test that Paul's given us right here? Right? I think it'd be very few. How many politicians just say anything, no matter, no regardless of the truth? They'll say anything just to get elected, and and none of it relates to how they live or what they really think. I mean that's alive and well in our culture, is it not? And it cannot be. That's fine. That's the world we expect that, but that can't be alive and well in the church, right? We have to. We need the living embodiment of the word in Christ to filter out all the broken stuff that, that we hear and breathe and see all through the week. You know, if, if you only are interacting with the word of Christ, one for, for you know, 40 minutes every Sunday How much time are you listening to social media, cable TV, right? And then we're surprised that, you know, I'm not thinking in a godly way in this context. This is the challenge of our culture. And and God help us, we need the word of Christ in our life. We need fellowship together. Jared announced, you know, we're going to be kicking off our fall studies in September. You know what? We need each other. I always say Christianity is a team sport. We need that fellowship. We need that constant encouragement. We need that challenge. We need people who love us enough to say, you know what, what you're saying about that, I don't think that's true. I don't, ref- I don't think that reflects the nature and character of Christ. You're not thinking it right about that. Stinking thinking. Right? We need that in our lives. I need that in life. I need that from you guys. You know, you see something that just seems out of whack. It may be, it may not be, but you should share it with me. Right? Because, because that's how we love each other. We speak the truth in love. Okay, be easy. All right? Don't, be, don't beat each other up, but, you know, gently, empathetically, knowing that you yourself are broken and flawed, confront each other and, and, and encourage one another and say, hey, there's a better way. Amen? All right, so the Cretans, they got problems. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, okay? Paul says sharply. And there does come a time, right? I tend to be on this side, this kind of the counselor end of the spectrum and want to you know encourage people gently, but there comes a time when we have to be sharp. There has to be a time when, there comes a time when we have to be very business and say, hey, this is wrong, this is not happening, and you're out. Or this is wrong, this is not happening, and if you don't change and repent, you're out, okay? So there's those times, and we've taken those times, and, and that does happen, and it hap- has happened here in this church. But that's, that's part of what it means to grow together. Okay, I'm going to wrap up in uh, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Same thing, right? Notice Paul says both their minds, the knowledge, the head knowledge of truth, and their conscience the, the sense of character, the sense of right and wrong, the back—that, the sense of who we are—is defiled. So, if you've been redeemed, if you've put your hope and faith in Christ, you're well on the way. You know what? What is already made pure makes everything pure. Peter says, "Love covers a multitude of sins." We're all fly, flawed. You know, even the preachers and elders are flawed. And yet we are being purified and are made pure in Christ, right? And we come at that with all humility, trusting in him for our purity. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Okay, there it is. The works show and demonstrate the fact that they really don't believe what they're saying. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The proof is in the pudding, right? Both for leaders and both for you as a believer, disciple of Christ, the proof is in the pudding. And when the pudding smells bad and doesn't taste right, don't shut down, don't run away from that. Don't like just stuff it back in there and hope that nobody notices. When you smell something rotten in the pudding, that's when you confess it to the Lord, that's when you go to scripture, that's when you call your buddy who you trust and respect and say, hey, there's something that doesn't smell right in my life, and I need prayer, I need support, I need encouragement, I might even need discipline, right? That is the mark of a true Christian. A true Christian is not someone who has all their ducks in the row every day, every moment. A true Christian is The one who says, Lord, my life is yours. And as you point out the failures and flaws and the defects and the things that are rotten in my heart, I'm going to confess them. I'm going to to seek prayer and support, encouragement, counseling, whatever, for you to cleanse that out and make it right. Turn it into a nice, creamy, yummy, sweet-tasting pudding, which we all will be at the return of Christ. Will we be made like him? because we will see him as he is. And that's God's promise. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have set us all on this journey, not just elders, not just teachers, but all of us. You have set us on a journey of being made pure, not just so that we can call ourselves pure, but that we can walk in and express the, all the beauty and glory and fullness of your great love. Father, how amazing it will be to be a fellowship, a family of God, a nation, a royal priesthood that loves each other perfectly forever. (laughs) Uh, And yet, You said that's how it's going to be. That is the truth. That is the reality. That is what we can be absolutely confident in, that we will be members, perfect, loving one another perfectly. What glory, what fun, what blessing, what, what honor that will be, Lord. And we praise you for that as we continue now to worship your great name. In your son's name, amen.